Well, brethren, getting to my subject this afternoon, when Mrs. Herbert Armstrong was dying, she was not dying as a young woman. Some of you may think God lets everybody die when they're young. No, many of these people we ask you to pray for are way up in their 60s or 70s or 80s or whatever. Mrs. Armstrong died at age 75 and a half. So she lived five and a half years longer than King David did, who was old and full of days. In fact, she was just about exactly my age. That's a frightening thought. <laughs> but at any rate, she died at that time. When she was dying, her husband used to have Bible studies with some of us up in his study and prayer, pray together about it and about the needs of God's work and anything that we ought to be learning to help the church get closer to God. And one of the main things God showed him that we prayed about and tried to stir up the church about was proper Sabbath keeping. He said, our brethren have let down in the way they keep the Sabbath. And they're not really keeping the Sabbath properly and worshiping God and they're careless on the Sabbath. And he realized that and talked about it for a long time and so on and tried to get the church back on the track in that particular way. Well, here we are way many years later and, of course, nearly 40 years later, 38, I guess, and now we're weak in Sabbath keeping too. And many of God's people have let way down and the way they keep God's holy Sabbath. And our young people especially often let down. And I'm not against you. I want all of you to know that even as I preach. I, I love young people. The happiest times I've had in my life, or many of the happiest, have been teaching young people in ambassador colleges on all three campuses. But I had to realize that a lot of you younger people have never had sermons and instruction on Sabbath keeping. You didn't get the chance to go to Ambassador College. It wasn't around. Or when it was around, you didn't get to go there. And perhaps your local minister didn't give detailed sermons on it. And many of you older people have not fully learned how to keep the Sabbath and don't appreciate it like you should. And this is a very, very important thing, by the way. Some of you might think it would be more exciting. I didn't know how many guests we'd have here. I could preach to you about the end of the world. And I could tell you exactly when Christ is coming, if you want me to, at a time no man knows. <laughs> but this thing of Sabbath keeping, I think, is more important than most of you begin to realize. It's an awfully important thing to God Almighty, and certainly was to Mr. Armstrong when he got to thinking about the need. Do you know how to worship God and honor Him on His Sabbaths? I say Sabbaths, because here it is Christmas time, the Christmas season, as I give this sermon. And we need to realize how much better God's Sabbaths are than the worldly Sabbaths. There's no comparison of the worldly holidays rather than God's holy days. So we need to think about all of that. God tells us back in Luke chapter 4, you may want to look it up. Most of you know it. Luke chapter 4, verse 4, one of the most fundamental verses in the Bible. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And my brethren, the only written word of God, when Jesus Christ, the Son of God, said that, was what we call the Old Testament. The Old Testament. There was not any New Testament yet. It had not yet been written. And Jesus said we should live by every word of God. So we do need to understand that. The modern so-called Christians come along and they try to put down the Sabbath and say it's Jewish. 
They try to do away with all kinds of things. They say just come from the Old Testament and all that type of thing. And that is absolutely wrong. I grew up for 19 years of my life in the First Methodist Church at 4th and Byers, I think it was, or was it 1st and Byers in Joplin, Missouri. And uh, I went there regularly, and they were nice people. The pastor was nice, and he talked about general stuff. You've heard me explain that. Never heard the truth of God at all, just a general idea about Jesus and be good and live a generally good life and certain amount of philosophy and psychology and all that type of thing. But my family and I, as virtually all my Protestant friends, I had this gang, you've heard me tell me, they weren't like some evil gang in a ghetto, but we were a group of kids who happened to grow up in the north part of Joplin. Twenty-five young men, not quite as many young women that, that in the gang, because our mothers remarked how many boys, how many of them happened to have boys up in Northtown, we used to call it, in the year 1930 or thereabouts. They all happened to have boys, and so there were 25 of us, and I would run around one night with... Carter McKee in his station wagon, or Ducky McPherson in his car another night, or Jack Vernoy or Jimmy Porter, someone else. They all, all had cars, <laughs> and so we had fun. We were normal. I won't tell you all the terrible things we did. <laughs> the city is still standing, however. <laughs> but anyway, so I, some of them were Baptists, some were Presbyterian, some went to other churches, Protestant churches, and I went to the Methodist church, but the Protestants. In my experience talking to those people and attending some of the Christmas and pre-Christmas celebrations in some of their churches or other celebrations at times, I know, and most of you know, who've grown up in those churches, the lessons that they might have learned or not learned from their Christmas and Easter celebrations. At Christmas time, they talked about little Lord Jesus, little Lord Jesus, away in a manger, mother and child, and the mother overshadowing the child, little Lord Jesus, and all that, tiny little helpless baby, how sweet, how nice. They didn't hear much about the Christ who gave the Ten Commandments on the top of Mount Sinai, who was the God of the Old Testament, never heard about that Christ, never heard about Christ the book of, in the book of Revelation, who's sitting poised at the right hand of God, getting ready to come back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And as Mr. Ames commented and Mr. Apartheid wrote about, I had the same feeling when we were there at the Messiah concert the other night. It really brought tears to my eyes when they were all standing. Here are these very fine people down there. Most of them are here. Suddenly two or three thousand of them get up when they started the Hallelujah Chorus because it was King uh, George II, apparently, that set that example. The kings just suddenly stood up in one performance hundreds of years ago, and what the king does, you're supposed to do. So everybody stood up, and that became a kind of a custom. And that's wonderful. King of kings and Lord of lords, and suddenly, hallelujah, and the whole congregation, the whole huge group there stood up to honor God. And I thought, wow, boy, I wish we could help these people understand what that really means. Boy, I wish we could help these people get with it and their eyes would be open and they could really feel they wanted the Christ of the Bible to come back to this earth soon and set up the kingdom that's been promised for so many generations. They don't understand that, the vast majority of them at all. It's a tradition, nice music, and there they are. How wonderful that would be. But you learn about the little Lord Jesus. You learn about Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. You learn the lie about Santa Claus, and then some young kids are disillusioned when they find out that's all a lie, and there is no Santa Claus, and their parents have been telling them that lie. 
And you learn the lie that Christ was born December 25th. And all historians and chronologists know he wasn't born anywhere near December 25th. He was born back in late August or September because he died at Passover time in the spring, three and 33 and a half years later. So he had to be born at a different time. So little Lord Jesus, helpless little baby, Rudolph, all the commercialism and buy this and buy that and do this and do that and all this stuff. Now, Satan is very clever. Satan is not stupid. So he's attached Christmas to family. And now they think, well, it's a family thing. And we talk about sleigh bells and it's all picturesque, you know. And we hear Bing Crosby sing. And I love him singing this. It's good, you know, where he sings about White Christmas. Some of you remember that old song. And as it just reminds me of my Christmases growing up with the snow coming down in Joplin, Missouri. But it didn't have anything to do with the whole purpose of human existence. You could keep it until you're blue in the face. And you would never, ever understand God's plan. It's a clever counterfeit. Satan's pagan holidays. What's the worst part of them? All the Yule log and the other stuff that's pagan connected with Christmas. That's all bad. The wrong time of the year. That's bad. But the worst thing, frankly, when you really think about it, about Christmas and Easter, is that they become a counterfeit in place of God's holy days. Nobody observes both sets of days, if you know what I mean. And then Satan is able to blind people to the real God, the real Jesus Christ of the Bible, who's coming back as King of Kings. So then you come to Easter time, the other major festival, and then my mother would take Catherine and Patty and me, or my dad would be with us too sometimes, and we'd go out to Schifferdecker Park, or if it's a nice day, or sometimes in home, or we'd We'd have it in the backyard. We'd have Easter eggs. And my parents had colored these Easter eggs secretly. Sometimes we'd secretly, as they got to be a teenager, find them and find knew what they're going to do. We'd go hunt the Easter eggs. Easter eggs, what does that have to do with Christ? The very word Easter, Ishtar, goes back to Ishtar or Stardi, as it, we would pronounce it in some languages, or in Egypt, Ishtar, A-I-S-H-T-A-R, but pronounced Easter the name of the pagan goddess of sex and fertility in the springtime. Eggs, of course, all of us come from an egg, the ovum in our mother's womb. All goes back to that, a pagan sex celebration. And what's it all about? It's about that, when you really understand it, the symbolism all connected with it and selling Easter stuff and Easter eggs and so on. And then they do talk about the resurrection, that one thing. What was the tree that Adam and Eve took up? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They do talk about the resurrection, although most of them contradict themselves because they talk about it, yet they think they float off to heaven when they die. When they die, they don't say, well, you're going to come up later. Most of them, they'll just say, my beloved is off in heaven, or your beloved is off in heaven right now. So they contradict themselves. But... In keeping Easter, the Good Friday Easter tradition, they're denying the only special identifying sign that the Son of God gave that He was the Messiah. Turn there if you wish to, Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. Matthew 12, verses 38 to 40. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, or in a whale's belly, a special fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Or really is in the fish, I guess, in the first instance. I'm just paraphrasing it to keep going. Yes, they're denying that sign. 
because you can't fit three days and three nights between Friday afternoon, and they know Christ was buried Friday in the, in the evening, and Sunday morning. That's just one day and two nights. So they're disagreeing with, they're contradicting the special identifying sign of the Son of God when they keep that pagan, and it's all totally pagan, holiday. So think about it. These days become a clever counterfeit of God's days. That's the worst thing about them. And that's the lessons you subconsciously learn from those days if you stay in that system. But what about the biblical holy days that Christ and the apostles observed? I'm not going to try to go through all that sermon today. We've done that before. And if any of you here are new and want to learn about it, please ask for or Maybe we could have someone take it down and send it or write in or call in for it. Our booklet on the holy days, God's master plan. We have an entire booklet thoroughly explaining all that in the Bible how they were kept by Christ, they were kept by the apostles, they were kept by the early in the history of the church. I might mention any of you visitors, by the way, I'm not preaching just to you, as some of you know, the camera's there, and this sermon will be going down to Perth, Australia, and Cape Town, South Africa, and our churches around the world. So I want everyone all over, that we have new people coming in everywhere to understand those things. What lessons do we learn from those days in contrast to the pagan days? Well, most of you know, first of all, you have the Passover. Christ is our Passover. And as the book explains, the Bible explains, that focuses our mind on the first great point of Christianity. We accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, our Passover lamb who paid for our sins, and also as our Lord and Master whom we should obey. The tremendous lesson there, the first thing, but a lot of churches have that lesson partially, and their understanding, but that's about all they have. Then you come next to the days of unleavened bread. And what do you learn there? Well, there, of course, you learn about putting out sin, put leaven out of your home. You've got to grow, constantly grow in grace and in knowledge and put out sin. And yet if you hear these Protestant preachers, oh, just, uh, you know, you're already saved and just give your heart to the Lord, they don't talk much about that at all. Some few do, but most don't. And they don't know what sin is anyway and how to come out of it because they don't recognize or admit to themselves 1 John 3, 4. Sin is, that's what it says, sin is the transgression of the law, breaking the Ten Commandments, not man's ideas. And so these are some of the big lessons you learn. Thirdly, you come to Pentecost, which also is called the Feast of First Fruits, and then you learn that we're the first fruits of God's salvation. And there are just a few people called out now. God is not trying to save the whole world today. The world doesn't know that. If you hear Billy Graham or Oral Roberts or, or Jerry Falwell and they say, you come now, come, this may be your last chance and you better do it now or else. Well, does that mean God's going to burn in hell? The billions and untold billions of people, frankly, when you add it up, all over the United States and Canada and Central and South America and Africa and Asia, people in Indonesia, people in India, people in China who didn't know anything about Christ. Are they all going to hell or is God going to give them some kind of a genuine opportunity? Well, the world doesn't understand that. So the Feast of First Fruits shows us the need for God's power, His blessing on the early harvest and that it is, in fact, the early harvest. Then you come to the seventh month, the month of perfection or completion in the fall and the first day of the seventh month is what? The Feast of Trumpets. And trumpets, an alarm of war. And shows there are going to be massive tsunamis, yes, in Southeast Asia. And big hurricanes down on the Gulf. 
and terrible wars all over the world raging even now and more terrible weather upsets and massive earthquakes yet to come and all the rest of it at the time of the end. An alarm of war. That's when Christ is coming. And Christ comes at the seventh trump, the last trumpet. And so it's called the Feast of Trumpets, picturing this time we're living in right now. Next is you find the Day of Atonement and the Day of At One Man when Satan is banished. Satan has to be banished for there to be a happy millennium. And then the whole world will become at one with God during the millennium. And you know the, the uh, uh, description of that back in Leviticus 16 and how the, the original uh, uh, atonement service involved leading this goat out in the wilderness. And he was to be left out there just like Satan is banished and put away. The next feast is the Feast of Tabernacles. And again, you look up the scriptures in the booklet, if you have the booklet when you get home, called the Feast of Ingathering, the big fall harvest when God during the millennial reign of Christ sets his hand to save the whole world, a wonderful, massive time of tremendous salvation and blessings for the whole world. You learn that lesson. The real God, and he sets up the kingdom of God. We pray, if we pray the Lord's Prayer or part of it sometimes, thy kingdom come. And the Protestants and the church I grew up in and all these other churches I've ever attended, they often recited as part of their service. The preacher would say, and now as our Lord said, and they bow their heads and start to mumble, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come. Mumble, mumble, mumble as they recited together. And most of them have no idea what that means. They don't get it. It's sort of a vague general thing. I remember thinking to myself, what's this all about? And the choir would come down, holy, holy, holy. And I think maybe the Holy Spirit is a kind of a spook with a long choir robe or robe or something like the choir talking about the Holy Ghost. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And they don't know what it means. They're all mixed up. God seems way off and the whole thing seems nice. And maybe they go out into the sunshine after the service and they feel better. They think they've done their duty. They've gone to church on Sunday morning, so somehow they feel better. But they don't know God. They don't know the true Christ of the Bible. They don't know the whole purpose of human existence. They never learn God's plan because they keep the wrong days. And they don't keep His holy days that point all that out. Then you finally come to the last of God's holy days, His church festivals, the Great White Throne Judgment Day, which comes right after the Feast of Tabernacles, and that, of course, pictures the time described in Revelation chapter 20, about 1 or about 11 through 20, whatever it is, when God's going to set his hand to save the whole world. And described back there in Ezekiel 37, where the house of Israel has always been a type of all nations, comes up. And then God's put his spirit in them. And they're given a chance, as God tells, I think it's in Matthew 11, about even Sodom and Gomorrah or to have a better opportunity, you know, than these self-righteous Jews who were rejected Christ at that time because the people of Sodom and Gomorrah didn't know Christ. He was not there. They didn't have any opportunity. And God is not unfair. God is not a respecter of persons. He's got to give them an opportunity, and He will. Billions of people coming up, and you and I will have the opportunity to help and to encourage and to build and to strengthen and to teach those people in a few years, just after the millennium, 
But the millennium is a day, you know, in God's plan. So once we're in God's kingdom of spirit beings, it'll go by pretty fast. And the next thing we know, we're going to be teaching those billions of human beings, some of my relatives and your relatives who've died. And that's awesome. One of the most awesome things in God's plan. When all humanity finally has a genuine opportunity and the Protestants don't understand that in any way whatsoever, the Catholics don't understand it in any way whatsoever, and we're the only church that I know of that is the descendants of Mr. Armstrong's work and the churches of God that understand. Because God led that man to understand the basic principles and plan of God. The holy days show that plan, and that's magnificent. It's so much better than keeping Christmas. As a lot of you know, brethren, and you brethren around the world probably read this in your papers and magazines, there have been many articles over the years I've seen by just carnal secular reporters. And they point out, that the biggest time for suicide in the entire year is usually around the Christmas, New Year's period. People are let down. They thought Christmas would make them happy, and it doesn't, and then they kill themselves. These days do not make people happy. These days do not fulfill the need for them to know the true God and why they're here and what it's all about. They don't do it. They never will do it. But God's holy days do, if we understand and if we can learn to really keep them and appreciate them, what they mean, and worship God in the holy days. So we do need to understand that and grasp this principle, of course, and that is very, very important. But what about the weekly Sabbath? What about the weekly Sabbath? Turn with me, if you would, at this time to Mark chapter 2. Let's go to Mark. Boy, that tea is good, and you can't have any. (laughs) I need that for my throat. (laughs) Anyway, in Mark chapter 2 and in verse uh, 27, Jesus said, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. Now, brethren... It doesn't say the Sabbath was made for the Jew. It says the Sabbath was made for man. And the Sabbath was made, as most of you know, way back before there ever was such a thing as a Jew. Because Judah, after whom the Jews were named, is the great-grandson of Abraham. Abraham begot Isaac, and Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot Joseph. And, uh, no, I'm sorry, Jacob then begot the, the twelve people, tribes of Israel, (laughs) one of them was Joseph, got in a hurry here, and one of them was Judah, after whom the Jews are named. So anyway, Judah then was the grandson, I guess, of uh, Abraham, and uh, great-grandson, had it right the first time. So you look on in the Bible, and you see how that works out. Anyway, the Sabbath was made for man, not for the Jews, And man was not made to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to serve us and to bless us if we really understand it. Which day is Christ the Lord of? He's not the Lord of Sunday. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And he makes that very, very clear in this passage. Let's go back to where that occurred because the Sabbath was made when man was made. Turn with me back to Genesis now, if you would. Genesis chapter 2. 
And you'll notice in chapter 1, if you just came over the verses, how he recreated the earth as it is, put man on it. And then in chapter 2, thus the heavens and the earth were finished. Genesis 2, verse 1. And all the host of them were finished. And on the seventh day, not just any day of the week, the seventh day, God ended or completed his work which he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from his work which he had done. God rested on that day. Now, God didn't get tired physically. We know that. But he set us an example. He showed us how important that time is to him when the Creator rests. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified. Sanctify means to put set apart for holy use and purpose because in it he had rested from all his work which God had created and made. Now, brethren, some of the even Protestant commentaries, they later have a very clever way of explaining it away, but when they get, come here, they show how the Hebrew words indicate holy time. This was made a very special time, holy time. God blessed this 24-hour period of time from sunset Friday to sunset Sabbath. He put his blessing on this time. He made it holy time. It's set apart for holy purpose, not just for any purpose, but for God's purpose. But often we don't seem to understand that and we treat it cheaply, which God does not appreciate. But that's what God did and how he made the Sabbath for uh, man. And then uh, he recreated it, as we see through the rest of the Bible, not only for holy time, but as part of an opportunity, of course, involving being holy time, a time of rest. He tells us to rest. It's a time of contemplation, to be able to have time to think, to rest, to think, to look around at God's creation, to realize what's really important and what's not important. It's a wonderful time if we learn to really appreciate it and use it. More about that later. But certainly that's all involved in Sabbath-keeping. You turn to Exodus 16 now, if you would, brethren. Exodus chapter 16. And uh, here you find uh, how Israel, coming out of Egypt had lost some of the lessons perhaps they had known about before during the time of Joseph, certainly. And so God begins to re-reveal the Sabbath to them. We know Abraham must have kept the Sabbath because God says in Genesis 26, 5, Abraham was blessed because he kept my commandments, my laws, and my statutes. That's Genesis 26, verse 5. So Abraham must have obeyed the Sabbath. I know he did when you think about it, no question. But here they come out of Egypt, and so God, this is before Sinai, not part of some old covenant, was given before Sinai, this instruction. Chapter 16 of Exodus, verse 23. Then God said to them, This is what the Lord has said. Tomorrow is a Sabbath of rest, a holy Sabbath. Holy time to the Lord. Bake what you will bake today, and boil what you will boil, and lay up for yourselves all that remains to be kept till the morning. So they were to do their heavy cooking, at least, their baking and boiling the day before. That's a key part of keeping the Sabbath that many of our young women have never learned at all, and some of our old women have forgotten or don't practice. Friday is supposed to be the preparation day. One terrible thing in our society is that so many women have to work, and they don't even have the whole day to prepare like they used to but they're either going to have to start getting off at Friday noon or early or something or do extra work, perhaps some of them with their husband's help, to prepare some Thursday night 
do some heavy cooking if they're going to have a big dinner Thursday night and, uh, and then Friday morning. And then if there's time before Sabbath, you know, begins Friday afternoon to do that so they don't have to do the heavy cooking and boiling and so on on the Sabbath. And so they they uh, uh, laid it up as Moses commanded, that is the the uh, uh, manna here. And it did not breed worms or stink, nor were there any worms. Then Moses said, eat that today. He caused the manna not to stink by keeping it over an extra day, which they normally couldn't do. Today is a Sabbath to God. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you'll gather it, but on the seventh day, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. Now it happened that some of the people, oh, well, it doesn't make any difference. God's not important. It's not important to God. We can just keep some other day. So this is the mind of God. The Bible is the revelation of the way God thinks. And they had this attitude like people do today. And they went out together, some on God's Sabbath, and they found none. And then God said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? What's he referring to? Well, the Sabbath day. This was Christ speaking. When you understand it, of course, he was the God of Israel, the God of the Old Testament, the the, the Sabbath is Christian. It was given by Christ. Christ is the one who was the Lord of Israel. God has always dealt with humanity through Jesus Christ. See, for the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you on the sixth day bread for two days. Let every man remain in his place and let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. Now, at that point, they were told not even to go out. Some people overdo some of these. They don't let the Bible interpret the Bible. We see later that Jesus did eat with the Pharisees and others on the Sabbath day. I don't have time to cover all those, but you can look that up. And there was some work involved, of course. They had servants in the household and so on. And so he did eat out on the Sabbath in that way in various places at various times. And he did walk through the grain fields, as we'll go back to Mark chapter 2 again, on the Sabbath. He didn't have to stay in, and neither did they. They would pluck ears of corn and do various things to eat on the Sabbath. But they didn't were not to do any heavy work, and even when they had the bread given directly by God to stop them from going out and looking for that, knowing how carnal they were, God says, don't even go out of your place on the Sabbath. Then you come to Exodus 20, and here the Sabbath command is given. Verse 8, remember the Sabbath day. Remember what? You can't remember something unless it's already there, you know. So it already existed. He didn't say, I'm telling you about it for the first time. He said, remember something God had already given from creation. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. As Mr. Armstrong used to say, you can't keep cold water hot. It has to be hot already. The Sabbath was made holy by God, and God tells us to keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work. So God gives us six days for those things. But the seventh day, not just any day, the seventh day, is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, your daughter, your manservant, maidservant, or anyone within your gates. Today, some of us do eat out occasionally on the Sabbath. Some overdo that, but they're not within our gates, and they are Gentiles who would be working anyway. I mean, spiritual Gentiles. And uh, we don't make them work more than they would be anyhow, and that is a different matter, although we've got to be very careful in doing that. Some overdo that. Mr. Armstrong ate out regularly on the Sabbath. 
I'm not here getting that third, uh, hearsay, of course. Mr. Party knows who's here, and I'm sure he ate out with him on the Sabbath, and I did too many times. He was the one who taught most of it the Sabbath. But we, if we go into a loud, noisy restaurant or kind of a bar with this or that, as some people do, and have cocktails before, that takes you clear away from these other things that I'm going to describe about the Sabbath and the attitude of rest and worship on that day. I practically never eat out on Friday night. That's not a sin. Mr. Armstrong did and certainly had to all the time in traveling, but even did sometimes in Pasadena. Basically, most of us can be at home and should on Friday night, but if sunset doesn't occur till 9 o'clock or over in England, it's around 9.45 or 10 o'clock in certain areas, Saturday night, well, if you're into London and you, you you pay money to get in there by the tube, the, the subway, they call it the tube, and, uh, you know, you can't really have a, a Sabbath uh, lunch in a park or anywhere else. It's probably raining, <laughs> and you either eat out or you starve or something. And so since you're paying to get in there and lots of other things, of course, you pay for the electricity and all, it's not wrong to have, to have fellowship with brethren in that way on Sabbath evening. Uh, after church or other special times. But God says in this way, uh, you're not to work or those in your household within your gates. For in six days, the eternal, the ever-living one, made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day and hallowed it. Now, brethren, I'm reading this carefully because that is one of the big lessons of the Sabbath. I'll be coming back and reviewing three big purposes for the Sabbath. One of the main purposes is the Sabbath reveals the true God. It focuses on the true God, the Creator. All over the earth at this time, they had the pagan nations worshiping the God of the sun and the God of the moon and the God of this and the God of that. The Sabbath day pointed to the Creator God. And it's very important. You say, oh, well, people wouldn't do that today. Well, they do worship the works of their own hands in different ways today. They do get all kinds of false concepts about God. But those who keep the Sabbath day are a lot more likely to know about God as the Creator God and the God you ought to obey. I know the Jews don't, and I know that some other Sabbath-keeping groups don't understand the holy days are all we do, but they still tend to have a lot more knowledge of the true God. And that's very important, very important to God. The Sabbath points that out, and it's extremely important to know the true God, and the God reveals himself through that. Over in Exodus 31, Exodus 31, and beginning in verse 12, the Eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths, not the Jewish Sabbaths, my he says, Sabbath's plural, undoubtedly including the holy days. You shall keep, for it is a sign. The Sabbath is a sign of the Creator God. It's an identifying sign focusing on those, you see, who have the fear of God. And that points out to God those who have what God would call the fear of God, a deep respect and awe for their Creator. They're the ones who will be willing to truly keep His Sabbath a sign between me and you throughout your generations that I may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall therefore keep the Sabbath, therefore it is holy to you. And anyone breaking it was to be put to death, he said. You think about that, my brethren. He puts it in the same category as murder, 
adultery, and so on. Sabbath, breaking. They were to be put to death at that time. No, we are not threatening anyone. We don't do that today. But the death penalty will eventually come on those who refuse to keep the Sabbath once they really understand it. Once they really understand it, you see, it's one of God's great laws. It carries the death penalty. Work shall be done, verse 15, for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest. Holy to the Lord. Holy time to God. And this day, this holy day, God's presence is with us, brethren, in a different way than it is the other days of the week. One way to understand it, to think about it, is this way. You can draw a roof over us, so to speak, an invisible roof, and mankind cut off from God might come up with a realization, no, you shouldn't kill, because if you kill people, then someone may kill you, or they'll come looking for you, or, you know, whatever. You shouldn't commit adultery, because the woman's husband is going to come looking for you, <laughs> and all kinds of troubles. Your wife's going to hit you over the head with more than a rolling pin, and all the other horrible things, the breakup, the agony, the sorrow that comes from adultery. They can figure those things out lying, same thing. Most of the other commandments, you see, are, are, are obvious by human understanding. The Sabbath is the one thing you can't figure out by human reason. You have to know by faith that the Bible is inspired by God. And the Bible says this day, there's not some special signs or little sparklers in the air or something to point it out. This day is holy time because God said so. And in the 56 some point years and so many months I've been in the church, I've sensed that. I've seen that. It works that way. If you obey God in those ways, you come to understand the purpose of the Sabbath day. God's, God's presence is in this day. And so you're to keep this day. Holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall be put to death. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It's a sign between me and the children of Israel. For notice, in six days, the Eternal made the heaven and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. Again, pointing to the Creator God. A special sign to point to the true God. That's what this day is. Very special time. Very important to our Creator. So it's a sign between God and His people. You say, well, we're not Israelites. We're not Jews. Well, some of us are not Israelites by nature, but God shows back in, in Galatians 6.16 and many other scriptures, we're the Israel of God, you know, and we become spiritually Israel if we're in God's church. And certainly the rest of the Bible shows that. That's a very important understanding. Turn back to Isaiah now, if you would. Isaiah chapter 66. Here, brethren, we come to the time at the very end of this age. And when Christ is back on earth as King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, we know Hebrews 13 verse 8, one of my favorite scriptures where it says Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change His law around. And He says back here in Isaiah 66, For as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, this is the time in the millennium just before that, shall remain before Me, says the Eternal, so shall your descendants in your name remain. And it shall come to pass that from one new moon to another, and from one Sabbath, oh, the Sabbath is involved here, to another, all flesh shall come to worship before me, says the Eternal. 
So the Sabbath is going to be observed in tomorrow's world. And it's a time when all flesh will come to worship before God. As we found back or will find back in uh, Leviticus, it's a holy convocation. It's a commanded assembly and we're supposed to worship before God on that day. So that's a very important point here as well. Now let's go ahead to uh, the New Testament again. Let's turn to Hebrews, if you would. Hebrews 4. In your New Testament, Hebrews chapter 4, Paul writes, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, that is the ultimate rest of the kingdom of God, the resurrection, so on, let us fear lest any of you seem to have come short of it. Brethren, we should fear. Not You're not supposed to be a fear God as a monster, and I don't want you to do that, but there is a healthy fear of God, that God is real. These things are happening. We need to wake up. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. In the Old Testament, they didn't have faith. For we who have believed do enter that rest. As he has said, so I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. He was not going to let them enter the promised land, which was a type of the kingdom of God. And certainly they weren't to enter the kingdom of God either. The vast majority of them, only uh, the prophets like Moses and then later Joshua and uh, Barak, I think it was, wasn't it? The one who was good, was uh, faithful to stand up for righteousness then. But the rest of them did not. Although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. Notice, they shall not enter my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. What's he talking about? Well, Peter said in his last letter, Second Peter 3, that Paul wrote many things hard to be understood. This is one of those places. <laughs> Paul mixes together different metaphors and so on. But certainly he's talking about the Sabbath in connection with the promised land and ultimately the kingdom of God, of which the promised land was a type. And so he's talking here about the Sabbath. 4, verse 4 continues, He has spoken in a certain place of the seventh day. Oh, because the seventh day pointed toward that what? It pointed toward the kingdom of God. God says back in Second uh, Peter 3, 8, A day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years as a day. You know the plan of God as we've explained it to you so many times. The Sabbath helps picture that. Mankind has been given by God 6,000 years under the influence of the God of this world called also the God of this age, Satan the devil, to blind them, to lead them, to cut them off, and to influence them to try out their ideas of government, their ideas of education, their ideas of religion and all the rest of it. And it's all coming crashing down soon. Utter failure. I noticed the other night on television as we were watching the BBC World News, which is the only good one now that we can find. It gives you some real world news and not all the American gossip. But they were showing these thousands, tens of thousands of Sunni Arabs and, and, uh, and the uh, secular Shiites marching and yelling against the Constitution in Iraq. President Bush's desire is sincere to democratize the whole world. 
But God says, no, the world will not be democratized, and I don't think he's going to let these Democrats march right up to the kingdom thinking democracy is the way. It's going to fall apart, it'll come to ignominy, and then Christ will have to come and pick up the pieces. But that's another subject. So we need to realize this 7,000 years is coming soon. So he spoke of the seventh day. God rested on the seventh day from all his works. That can only mean the weekly Sabbath. But pointing to, as you see, that ultimate rest, the millennium, the millennial rule of Christ, the kingdom of God. And again in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains that some must enter it, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of disobedience. You turn back if you want to later. I don't have time in the sermon today to read Ezekiel 20. But if you're interested, just read Ezekiel 20. And you'll find in Ezekiel chapter 20 the two great sins that our Israelite ancestors were driven into slavery for were idolatry and Sabbath breaking. Not adultery, not all the other stuff they got into, but God mentioned several times idolatry and Sabbath breaking. It's a big deal to God. And our nations are breaking the Sabbath today. And so it's talking about the seventh-day Sabbath. Again, in this place, they shall not enter my rest. Some didn't because of disobedience. Again, he designates a certain day, verse 7, saying, And David, today, after a long time, has been said, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. God apparently appealed different times through different prophets to people. For if Joshua had given them rest... And the Greek word ought to be translated Joshua here. I think the, King, the, new, the old King James has a Jesus, doesn't it? I've got the new King James. And he was talking about Joshua. If he brought them into the true rest of God, then he would not afterward have spoken of another day. There remains, therefore, a rest for the people of God. Verse 9 uses a different word. The normal word here all the way through this chapter for rest is katapausin. K-K-A-T-A-P-A-U-S-I-N. Look it up in a interlinear. Suddenly in verse 9, he uses the word sabbatismos, meaning the keeping of the Sabbath. The keeping of a Sabbath. So there remains a keeping of a Sabbath for the people of God. Notice verse 10 carefully. For he who has entered his rest, meaning obeys God and keeps the Sabbath, has himself also ceased from his works as God did from His. Now, often Protestants talk about we have to cease our work of sin. Did God cease His work of sin? No. <laughs> God never sinned. He's talking about God doing physical rest, so to speak, on the Sabbath, and we're supposed to do the same thing. For he who has entered His rest has ceased from works, as God did. Let us, verse 11, therefore be diligent... That's our command. Be diligent to enter that rest. What rest? The weekly Sabbath. Be diligent to keep the weekly Sabbath as a preview of the coming kingdom of God, the ultimate rest in God's kingdom, God's family. Be diligent to enter that rest as himself all, excuse me, uh, to enter that rest lest anyone fall after the same example of disobedience as ancient Israel disobeyed the Sabbath and were driven into slavery because of that. It is a big deal to God. Our ancestors certainly found that out, and our whole nation and Britain and all the rest are going to find that out a few years from now. It's not a small thing to God. 
Go back to Mark again, chapter 2, if you would. Mark uh, where we were, but chapter 2, and go back to verse 23. I'll not read the whole story here because of time, but you'll notice most of you know it. Uh, he talks about here that they were went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, Jesus and his disciples, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. Now, that took a little bit of effort. It wasn't huge work, but they were there, and with a, it was permissible to pluck leftover grain and fruit. And the Pharisees had their traditions. They always tried to add different do's and don'ts to the Sabbath that God had not given. They said, don't do what is not lawful on the Sabbath. But he said, have you never read what David did and when he was in need and hungry and those with him? I went into the house of Abiathar and uh, in the house of God in the days of Abiathar and ate the showbread, not lawful for him to eat. Well, it was not one of the Ten Commandments. It was a, a basic tradition and instruction, but it was an emergency that overrode that. And so he said, keeping the Sabbath here, showing that there are laws the Pharisees had given and added, and other ideas that men sometimes come up with that keep us from fully worshiping and enjoying the Sabbath. He said the Sabbath was made for man. It was not made as a set of handcuffs so you can't enjoy anything. It was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So that's the whole lesson we should be learning from all of this, of course, and that is very important. Turn to Isaiah 58, if you would. Isaiah 58. A very important scripture here, and one I hope that you'll review every now and then. Isaiah chapter 58 and beginning in verse 13. God tells his servants back then, If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, your pleasure, just something that's just fun stuff and you want to do that sort of comes between you and God and so on, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath the delight which you ought to do, the holy day of the Lord honorable and shall honor Him, honor God on that day, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. See, I will bless you in every way. The mouth of the ever-living one has spoken. So you're to honor God on the Sabbath, not trying to seek your pleasure. I find, brethren, I find you young people here and you young people around the world, some older people too, they will watch a movie on the Sabbath. Once in a while, my wife and I watch a documentary about the Bible or about the Dead Sea Scrolls or something that ties in with the Bible Friday night, but not a regular movie. That should never be done on the Sabbath. That's seeking your own pleasure. That's letting the world's ideas and concepts come pouring into your mind. What about music? Should you be listening to kind of wild, jazzy music or wild rock or rap or something? Well, obviously not. The God of the Bible certainly looks down on that kind of thing, and it takes your mind clear away from the quiet, contemplative spirit of worshiping your Creator. Some people occasionally have even gone to a basketball game or gone to some other sports thing on the Sabbath or watched that on television. No, Again, you're seeking your own pleasure. No excuse for that. That should not be done, period. I'm just saying that right out. No question about it. As I've said, eating out with brethren after the Sabbath, when the Sabbath comes later, we don't have that problem now, 
But here are people coming in from out in the country, around London and around New York. Most of them don't have cars, and even if, if they can do it, we can to an occasion in a right way. We haven't prepared food, and we need to eat with friends and brethren and have fellowship. That eating out would not be wrong as long as you're going to a reasonably quiet, decent restaurant, and your fellowship, your, your purpose is to fellowship with brethren and not just your pleasure. It's there to be with them, to share that Christian fellowship with others. Or you're really hungry and, you you know, some of our brethren way out in West Texas used to drive, you know, two to four hours to get to church on the Sabbath and sometimes they didn't have time or didn't get to prepare. They'd have one meal maybe they brought along for lunch, but then on the way home, what did they do? I guess they could eat cold food again. But anyhow, that's uh, that's not necessary. And God does not restrain us from that at all. And that's against the teaching of the church, by the way. So I think you all know that the Council of Elders has gone over this a number of times, back in Global and again twice in Living. And we went through it with Mr. Herbert Armstrong. And there's no question but what eating out on the Sabbath in that way and a good, clean atmosphere and for that purpose, there's no question but what that is all right. It does not break the spirit of the Sabbath. But we're not supposed to be seeking our own pleasure. We're not supposed to be speaking our own words. If you want to do a trick with that, you could say, well, I guess if we can't speak our own words, we've got to just read the Bible all the time and can't say sentences. No, it doesn't say that. You're not to just basically be gabbing and gabbing about worldly things, obviously, about the ball games or your latest fishing trip or whatever. You're to talk about things that tie in with the purpose of life. That's the whole thing. Brethren, when I first came to the Church of God and to Ambassador College 56 years ago last September, I felt at first, because I was carnal, I was not baptized yet, by the way, I should hasten to let you know that, the Sabbath was the day you can't. <laughs> and I had been boxing in high school, and I thought, boy, I'm going to get right out here, and every Friday night they had the big professional boxing matches down at this place in Los Angeles, and I wanted to go down, and suddenly I can't do that. And there were other things then. Bob Waterfield, I think, was the uh, uh, quarterback of the Los Angeles Rams, and they had their football game Saturday afternoon, and so I had to miss Bob Waterfield and the Los Angeles Rams. When I came to college, I didn't know about the Sabbath. And one day, my Uncle Paul, I was living with him the first few weeks till Mayfair opened up, and he said, well, he said, now, Rod, he says... Uh, Mr. Armstrong is the one that taught us this whole way of life and the truth, and he understands the truth better than any man on earth. And I've realized that. He came several weeks ahead of me, and he said, you know, we're going to church today. And he said, that may surprise you, but he says, just go there with an open mind, and you'll understand. I thought, wow, Saturday? You know, I didn't know anything, virtually. So I came along, and I learned, and a few weeks later, he preached a sermon proving the Sabbath. And I've always followed that outline in my Sabbath sermons in the evangelistic campaigns. I could practically give it from memory because I've given it in, you know, Fresno and San Antonio and Bristol and Birmingham and Manchester and all these other places I've had campaigns. But he starts right out in the New Testament with Mark 2, goes back to Genesis as I did, went right on through many other scriptures proving the Sabbath. About a two-and-a-half-hour sermon back then, believe me, he covered every base. <laughs> By the time he got through, I thought, wow, this day must be the Sabbath of God. And he proved it to me thoroughly, and I've been keeping it ever since. Not perfectly, but I still didn't really understand it. I thought, I can't do this and can't do that. 
Then through the year, I began to realize, well, it's not that bad because up on the third floor of Mayfair, us fellows would get together, the older ones who were converted with me and some of the newer ones, and they would have a kind of a bowl session, and we would have wine and crackers and cheese, nothing wild, just one or two glasses, but to visit, relax, fellowship, and we would talk together quietly about God, about some prophetic things. We didn't have all the prophecy things and... and uh, I forget Dr. Winnell's column didn't appear back in those days. All our booklets, we only had about six or seven booklets in the whole church at that time. And we had a lot of fun in a right way. And yet we were talking about God and the things of God Friday nights together. We'd have our own study, but around 9.30 or whatever, we'd head down to the big room. Uh, the room where I stayed with Herman Hay was on the south and then next to that were a couple other fellows. And then, but there was the one big room where four or five fellows could all live. And that's where we go to the big room and have to set up the wine and the cheese and, and, uh, and the crackers, you know, and have that Bible say that fellowship, that bull session together. And I begin to realize I'm, I'm learning things of God. This quiet, thoughtful contemplation gives me time. And we, during the week, we didn't seem to have that time. We were all working our way through college. We were busy, busy. We'd work 15 or 20 hours in our job. And then we would have to do our studies. And then we would have to do all these other activities. We had time, precious time on the Sabbath to think, why am I here? What is the purpose of life? And to contemplate quietly on our own Friday night and then together at the, at the study, at the bowl session, and then again Sabbath morning. No rush, no big deal. Church wasn't until 1.30 back then, I remember. So we had a whole morning to just think and personally study the Bible, to take quiet walks around South Orange Grove and over on Grand Street on the other side of Orange Grove. Beautiful, big, quiet boulevard over there. Mr. and Mrs. Pardon are spoiled. They used to live over there. <laughs> and... uh they didn't live in one of the biggest houses. I'm not a persecuted, but they had a wonderful, a quiet street over there. And that's where we used to go often, different ones of us, to think, to meditate. Some of us would get a blanket and put it down in the lower gardens, we called it. And then we would have a, just sort of sit in the sun and still study the Bible, Sabbath morning, and just enjoyed it. Then it was the day I could enjoy. Then I began to look forward to the Sabbath. But then that summer, the summer of 1950, after I'd been a year in college, my second year of college, but my first year was back in Missouri. Then I went to be a lumberjack up in Oregon. The whole summer we were going and going and going with Charles Duncan and Zane Bidwell, and they were Sardis guys, but they allowed us to work with them in the woods, so they kept the Sabbath. And every Friday afternoon, the Jeep would come rumbling down out of the mountains, and we would stay with Mr. and Mrs. Dave Henyon, Sr., some of you read Mr. Armstrong's autobiography, and he was one of the oldest members, and they were board members of the original Radio Church of God, and they put us up and kept us. We've been living with them about two weeks before we got our jobs. They're wonderful people. And boy, did I look forward to the Sabbath, because Zane and Charles Duncan were behind. They'd had a logging venture over in Idaho the previous winter that went wrong, and they were almost bankrupt. They lost money. They had to make up for it by making more money. You know, you work hard while the sun shines. And we had to do it right with them. <laughs> we were there. We were working about 12 hours a day. And I'll tell you, when I thought Friday evening was coming, I really mean it, brother. I can never forget it. I thought, wow, the Sabbath is coming. I can rest. <laughs> I can rest. And I appreciated it very, very much. 
but a lot of societies, and especially American society, people are so spoiled they don't have to work long, hard hours like they used to, and they don't appreciate the Sabbath. So we want to explain this way of life. The Sabbath is a great blessing when you understand it, when you use it rightly. So I gradually learned to appreciate the Sabbath, and it was a time of rest, of peace, peace of mind, no hurry, no go, go, go. It was a time of, of worship, to worship God with others. It's a time of contemplation and thinking about things. And I could take time to wander over in the library and look up things about the Bible I did not have time for during the week and just relaxedly do those things. We deeply appreciated the Sabbath, finally, most of us. And later on, as the college got bigger, we started a Friday night formal Bible study and I think Mr. Hall had come along about that time and remembers that. And we'd all, the young couples, handsome young couples, probably Mr. Hall and his wife, <laughs> would come walking down in their Sabbath dress down to the hill to the later, well, one of the halls, or first of all, it was over in the, in the Shakespeare Club, I'd be maybe in your day, I don't know, later on, the House of God. And we'd come down, come down to the House of God and these handsome young couples, you know, and they'd be walking, the girl would take his arm, and they'd be there, and they'd have, you know, visit during the dinner, then then have a date and walk around, and they'd go down to the Bible study. And then after the Bible study, they could take a walk around the neighborhood, even under the moonlight, <laughs> and a very nice atmosphere. But they had that, and a beautiful atmosphere on God's Sabbath day, a day for extra study that I really wanted to get in, because I had come out to learn the truth, a day of prayer. No one hurried me. We didn't have an early breakfast. We didn't have breakfast till whatever it was, 10 or 10.30, kind of a brunch. So if I got up as I normally did, about 8 or 7.30 or something, you could pray for an hour. No one hurried you. You could take your time and just think things through with God. You could read the Bible for an hour and sort of meditate and think about it. A day, no, no thing could interrupt that. So a day of study, prayer, of meditation, of contemplation, quiet walks, Friday evening and Sabbath summing, uh, Sabbath morning. And, of course, it gave us the opportunity to think things through and to seek our Father in heaven, to seek God in a way we could not do during the busy, busy time of the college year elsewhere. A day, brethren, also when God's church is to come together and worship God. And boy, we sang that song at the very beginning. I forget the name of the song, but Mr. Bonjour had to sing this beautiful song, and it was very fitting to start the worship service off, where we worship God. And that day should be a resounding feeling of worship and adoration for our Creator. And that was that is part of the Sabbath. And one thing about the Sabbath and about coming to church, do you come to church? Some people say, well, in some local churches or wherever, the minister's not too exciting, so I think I'll stay home. Do you come to church to get excited or do you come to worship God? Think about that. You ought to come primarily to worship God and then certainly you want to learn more of the truth. And if your eyes are open and your ears are open, I'm sure you will if you want to. And also you come to church to give, to give. Remember Acts 20, verse 35, some of the last words of Jesus recorded in the Bible, is more blessed to give than to receive. You come to this service to help others, to encourage others, to give to them, to share with them, to build them up. And during Friday night or Sabbath morning period or after church, 
You can make calls to those who are sick or discouraged, encourage others, write letters to them, you know, try to help others in every way you can and serve on the Sabbath like Jesus did. Yes, wonderful things. Brethren, there are three big lessons we ought to be learning on the Sabbath, three big purposes of the Sabbath. Big Roman numeral one, as I have it. <laughs> First, the Sabbath points to the true God, the Creator God. Not the day of the sun and the sun God, but the Creator God. Very important to the true God. Secondly, the Sabbath is a needed time of rest. Rest, physical and mental and emotional rest. A quiet time of contemplation, of study, of prayer, of worship. Some of our young people sleep in so they don't have to do anything else. They sleep in and then get up and go to church at the last minute. That isn't fulfilling the purpose. They get physical rest, then they sit in church. But the personal study and contemplation and so on is, is just a marvelous thing. I just love that and hungered for that when I was back in Ambassador College. But some of you kids who've grown up in church, you don't, you think you've heard it all your life and you may not have that hunger, but that's a pr wonderful part of the Sabbath when you come to understand. Thirdly, the Sabbath is a commanded convocation, a commanded assembly, so you assemble before God in the presence of your Creator to worship and adore your Maker. And then that will draw you closer to God, of course. And as you know, back in Leviticus 23, I said we'd be turning there. It says in Leviticus 23, verse 1, The Lord God spoke, saying, The feast of the eternal, not the Jews, but the feast of the eternal, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations, commanded assemblies. These are my feasts. Six days shall work be done, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest. The first of God's feasts is the weekly Sabbath. You shall do no work on it. It is the Sabbath of the, of the eternal in all your dwellings. Then he names the feasts of the eternal holy convocations, verse 4, which you shall proclaim in their seasons, as it is in the King James. The seasonal feasts coming through the harvest seasons of Palestine. And that, of course, I already explained the tremendous lessons we learn in that. Turn back then to Hebrews again in your New Testament. Hebrews chapter 10 this time, brethren. Hebrews 10. Notice here, beginning in Hebrews 10 and verse, uh, uh, get this right, verse to start, verse 23. God says here through Paul, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Don't waver. Don't fall away. For he who promised is faithful. These things are working out in world events. The great God is beginning to intervene. I hope all of us understand that by now. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You see, you learn to stir each other up if you come to church, if you talk to other brethren, if you fellowship, if you're all alone. So I'm just going to have my own church at home. That's not God's way. Never has been God's way. You never learn how to interact with other brethren. You do not learn to be part of a team. And Christ is preparing a team of kings and priests to serve under him throughout all eternity. You don't learn those things by doing it alone. So God tells you to come together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, 
but exhorting one another. Now, you're not to always yell at your brother and say, have you been good? (laughs) Santa Claus is coming to town. No, he's not. So you don't need to do it the wrong way, but yet you can say, well, I hope you're going to do better and let's all do better and kind of stir each other up in the right way, exhorting one another. And certainly the ministers exhort you from the pulpit here. And so much the more as you see the day approaching, the day of Christ's return, the end of this age. You need God's Sabbath. You need to feed on God's way. You need to be with God's people and worship your Creator and a holy convocation. So it's a wonderful thing to be part of God's church on the Sabbath. Turn back to John chapter 4. John chapter 4 now, the direct teaching of Jesus Christ. And let's begin here in verse 19. John 4, the woman said to Jesus, John 4 verse 19, here's this uh, Samaritan woman, as you know, who had had Five husbands, and the man she was living with now was not her husband, and Jesus pointed that out. She said, you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Of course, the Jews thought that was the only place to worship, because they were, again, carnal. They didn't understand God's whole purpose yet. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Well, of course, he knew they were all going to be scattered all over the world after 70 A.D. and all the other things that happened. You worship what you do not know. Or as the King James says, you worship you know not what. You Gentiles are worshiping, you know, the sun god and all these other idols and so on. You don't worship what you don't know. We know what we worship. No, the Jews weren't converted yet. The Holy Spirit was not yet given to most of them. It wasn't all their fault. But they weren't yet called, but they did know the basic idea of the truth. We know at least about the true God. They knew about the Creator God. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. And salvation is of the Jews, as you know, in two different ways. First, the Messiah was a Jew, and he taught that way of life and died for us. Secondly, the Jews are the ones that preserved the Old Testament. Romans chapter 3, you know, those first few verses there. They preserved the oracles the oracles of God, the whole way of God, what God used then to preserve. Salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship God, or will worship the Father, in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. And my brethren, in order to do this, You have to learn how to keep the Sabbath properly. You cannot worship God in spirit and truth and worship on the pagan day of the sun, keep pagan holidays that picture a false God, a false Christ, an entire false concept of God and Christ and the whole purpose of life and the whole plan of God. You can't do that. John 17, 17 says, Thy word is truth. The truth is right here. And throughout the Bible, he tells you to do these things. You worship God in truth, but you've got to worship God in spirit as well. You've got to have his spirit, and you've got to, brethren, if you really understand, and some of you are young, some of you are not converted yet, not only here but around the world. I understand that. I used to be that way, and I can remember how I felt at first. But if you come to really love God and you want to fulfill the purpose for which you're drawing breath, then you want to come to worship God in spirit. 
not say, how can I get around this? You know, if you, you know what I mean. How, how little can I keep the Sabbath? Some people are always thinking, how little can I tithe? Or how little can I do this or that? Or can I do this or that a little extra, drink a little too much, or neck a little bit too much, or do something else bad a little bit too much? No. If you're worshiping God in spirit and in truth, you will think, how can I keep the Sabbath in the spirit, the attitude that God wants me to, to keep not only the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, and worship my Creator on His holy day, and rejoice in that day. Think, oh my, this is the day I can study. I can quietly contemplate and meditate in a way I wished I could the rest of the week and often I don't find time. Now is the day that I can pour out my heart to God in prayer and not be in a hurry. Now is the time I can come with God's people and be stirred up and, and with others, be encouraged and led toward God's kingdom and participate in the work of God. We must worship God in spirit and in truth. So let's learn to rest on the Sabbath, to seek God on the Sabbath, and to worship and rejoice in God's holy day. And remember, this holy day was given to us as a tremendous blessing, a tremendous blessing. Let's use it that way.